Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning. And there's always so much going on in the world and we need to always uh, keep up with what our government is doing. And I want to get right to my first guest, uh, Congressman Chip Roy out of Texas. And uh, this was just a, a an incredibly disturbing story that uh, a large scale and sophisticated alien smuggling operation connected to a Mexican drug cartel, which smuggled dozens of illegal immigrants per month, including uh, unaccompanied minors and children. Uh, have This is a, uh, a case that is out of the United States Southern District for the Northern District of Texas uh, that that now I I don't even know if the the DHS um, is even aware of what's going on, but uh, Congressman Chip Roy joins to uh, to explain this further. I mean, Congressman, you posted um, just a couple of of the uh, the pages from this uh, this federal lawsuit, and um, what exactly is going on here? Because it just seems like the DHS um, really is not even paying attention to all of this that's going on at the border. Well, Jenna, thanks for having me on. Uh, what I actually posted, it was actually the entirety, believe it or not, it was three pages of an order issued by a federal judge in the Northern District of Texas uh, out of Fort Worth. And in that order, the judge basically is saying, I'm, I'm going to vary upward. I'm going to upward depart from the sentencing guidelines. And I think he's sending a signal that he intends to do so significantly because of the horrific nature of the crimes that you just uh, alluded to. Now, what was he referring to? He lays out in the order that there is a significant smuggling operation with stash houses uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, one in particularly where the facts were such that they learned from a father uh, who was in Baltimore, Maryland, and his wife and I believe daughter was he had paid a thousand dollars to have them smuggle you know, into the United States. But they were being held at a stash house, and he was told he had to pay $23,000 to get him released or, and I don't remember the exact quote, very bad things would be done to your little daughter. And that, that's the nature of the smuggling operation. This was the Juarez cartel, um, and they were uh, uh, you know, engaged in an active smuggling operation. This is happening throughout the state of Texas, throughout this country. Uh, there are stash houses throughout the, 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 the state and the country where this is happening. And in no civilized society, certainly not the greatest and most powerful country in the history of the world, can we allow this to happen while we're also turning our back on Americans dying from fentanyl. But yet that is precisely what this administration is doing. And uh, I, I applaud this judge, Judge Reed O'Connor, in Northern District of Texas, for um, uh, you know calling this out. Absolutely. And it's really good that that uh, he is saying that the guidelines don't adequately take into account these facts when recommending the appropriate prison range and uh, and then saying, you know, and laying out these facts, because this is so horrific in in terms of what uh, this cartel is doing to take a family and and 
have the husband pay to put to to bring them across the border and then basically hold them captive and say unless you pay us this ran- this ransom of $23,000 we're not only going to hold them in captivity but also do all of these other threats and, and vile things against well, uh, this person's in general, daughter. That means, exactly what that means is that the Department of Justice that the U.S. Attorney's Office was going to work a deal. One of the, uh, the, the, the folks, one of the defendants, was going to only serve two years, according to a deal. The sentencing guidelines were something like four years to five years. And, again, they're engaging in selling these human beings. I mean, so – and to put it in, in stark terms, the adults were being charged $10,000. The children were being charged twelve dollars to $14,000. So, I mean, think about that, right? I mean, they're charging more – for little children. And you know why, and you know what that means. And it's just horrific, and we have to end it. And any responsible president would end it immediately. So where where is Congress at with this then? Because it seems like there's a couple of things that very quickly the majority of Republicans, and, and you'd hope that some Democrats at least, would get on board with this as well, not only to uh, demand that and start impeachment proceedings unless this action happens, and then also uh, change some of these these sentencing guidelines that clearly are insufficient to address this. Well, we're having uh, conversations now. I mean, particularly in light of what of what this judge made very clear with sentencing guidelines about what needs to change. Obviously, as you know, we did in fact pass. You know, look, I've got my frustrations with Republicans. I didn't like the debt deal that was cut, but we did pass HR two. Uh, a border security bill, which would have been literally the best border security bill ever signed into law if it weren't for the handful of Democrats and the president who refused to do so. And it would fundamentally alter the landscape, stop the flow, stop Border Patrol being overwhelmed, which would allow them to stop much of the fentanyl and allow them to stop much of the human trafficking. If we just passed that law with this House of Representatives, this Republican House passed and sent over to the Senate. Uh, meanwhile, yes, we need to proceed with impeaching Mayorkas. I don't even believe that's a debatable. Uh, some people were debating, well, is this really a high crime, a misdemeanor? Some of my Republican colleagues, you know, look, we presented evidence. We had a hearing last week where where we had numerous folks talking about how Mayorkas has uh, specifically violated the law, not followed his uh, lawful duty to enforce, for example, the Secure Fence Act, have operational control of the border. He lied under oath either to me or the Senate when he said, yes, we have operational control to me in the House Judiciary Committee, and then less than a year later in the Senate said, oh, oh, well, I don't follow that definition of, of, of operational control. And, and if you follow that definition, no one has ever had operational control. So which is it, uh, Mr. Secretary? We know the truth. He's lying. He's refusing to do his duty. He should be impeached. Uh, I hope we will move quickly. I know Mark Green and the Homeland Security is having hearings. We're having hearings in the Judiciary Committee. American people are tired of hearing tired of talk. They want to see action. We should impeach the, the, the uh, secretary. Absolutely. I'm talking with Congressman Chip Roy out of Texas, and I I think that's exactly what the American people want. And certainly anyone who cares about uh, the border, who sees the fentanyl crisis, who sees uh, the human trafficking that's at the border and uh, and sees that these people who are fundamentally responsible for their oaths of office and to do their job, if the DHS secretary can't control the border and is refusing to do it and lying to Congress, if that doesn't qualify for impeachment, I'm not sure what does. I mean, the founders put that provision in place so that Congress would have that type of oversight over these uh, administrative positions so that if they were derelict, then 
impeachment is a way to proceed and let the Senate take that up. I mean, for, for your congressional colleagues, then, you know, say, OK, let's let's pass the articles of impeachment. And if the Senate, uh, they can debate it because that's the process, but at least have that type of action. So, you know, th- this is something that I think um, is, is really frustrating, Congressman, to a lot of people who want accountability and who see that there are maybe only a handful in Congress that are willing to use the process where the Democrats use it in a way that is obviously manipulated and weaponized and not intended how the founders meant it. But it seems like Republicans aren't even using it how it was intended because they're too scared of pushback. Well, look, I think uh, it is very clear is the overwhelming majority of Republicans believe that my should be impeached. Frankly, there are a number of the current administration uh, cabinet officials that we ought to be looking into how much they are violating the law and the possibility of impeachment. With respect to my orcas, uh, some of our colleagues said, well, I don't know if that's technically the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors, because they get a little too sucked into the idea that a you know crime, quote unquote, had to be committed to, uh, you know, that, oh, show this is, you know, a statute that was broken. Well, we can go show how there are laws that he's supposed to be following and he's failing to follow them. Uh, but I, I think what people are starting to realize is the founders gave us a tool to hold the executive branch accountable when they are violating their duty, when they're violating the public trust. That's what's happening here. So, of course, we should impeach Mayorkas. But the other thing we should do, Jenna, is use the power of the purse to demand that we change things. James Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, it's the most powerful tool you can give the House of Representatives against the tyranny of the executive branch. Why are we going to give them money and not demand that they actually do what they're supposed to do? So these are the things we need to be debating in the coming months to demonstrate to the American people that Republicans are serious. Like, I promise you, it's night and day between Republicans and Democrats, but night and day that yields us still more of the same garbage isn't good enough. The American people expect us to fight. We've got to fight and use the power of the purse and impeachment to do it. Yes, and and I completely agree with you. And I think that um, everyone who's listening across America right now is saying, yes, this is a great thing. And we would love for Congress to actually use uh, their delegated specific limited powers in the way that the founders intended to hold the coordinate branches, particularly the executive branch accountable. And uh, so I commend you for for this fight and for being willing to stand up and uh, hopefully impress upon your fellow Republicans that this is something that we need to do. And um, in just the last few minutes that I have with you, Congressman, and I always so appreciate your time. Um, You're one of the the best champions uh, for America and for our founding values in Congress. And um, Congressman Bob Good, who will join us next week, uh, had a a, a pro-life amendment during the debate on the Reins Act. And um, you uh, either co-sponsored or at least endorsed uh, that effort. What was that about and why were there uh, 10 Republicans who voted against that? Well, it's a great question. So real quick for your listeners, the Reins Act is a great piece of legislation that would say, hey, when you guys in the administrative state are regulating uh, and it has a significant economic impact or it's a major rule that Congress needs to approve it, that we need to be able to act. Well, uh, we did pass that. We passed it a part of the debt ceiling deal, by the way, but unfortunately it was peeled out. So what Bob offered, and I was a lead uh, co-sponsor of that amendment, was one to say, hey, if these regulations are going to have a significant impact on, uh, uh, on abortion, 
then we, you know, we ought to, Congress ought to be able to have a say. I also offered an amendment on a DEI, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. Let's say, hey, if you're going to advance that garbage, we should have a say. I offered one on vaccine mandates. Unfortunately, the abortion one lost by about 10 votes. We lost about 10 Republicans. We lost the DEI vote by two. Uh, we lost, I think, five Republicans. And uh, we actually won the vaccine mandate. We inserted that into the Reigns Act and sent that over to the Senate. So we had a, you know, one victory there. We, we lost a couple. Look, there's a few Republicans who just aren't quite fully, you know, where I think the vast majority of our electorate are and wanting to ensure that the administrative state can't advance reckless, uh, you know, executive orders on abortion and violate law, for example, like's happening in the VA and the Department of Defense right now, where they're ignoring laws and uh, advancing the entire abortion industry. So we're going to keep trying to fight and message it. We just got to get some Republicans to just lock our arms and go do what they expect us to do. Yeah, and, and this is a great example of using the power of the purse and saying that the, the federal government can't spend money to advance abortion. And um, and it was also reported that uh, 12 Republicans didn't even show up to vote. So if they had, then theoretically, this amendment could have passed. So um, wh- what's going on in terms of being able to even whip the like our own party? It's absolutely true that it is important for Republicans right now to use every tool at our disposal to draw a bright line of distinction, both for political purposes, but importantly, to demonstrate to the American people we're going to lead and fight. We did that with the RAINS Act. It's a good bill. Uh, The amendments that we added would have made it better. Unfortunately, a few Republicans broke from them. And now we've got a power of the purse question with the appropriations fight coming up. And we've got to decide whether we're going to stand up and fight. Are we going to continue to fund the bureaucrats that are at war with our way of life? Why would we fund the tyranny that we campaign against? We should cut it back. We should go much further than the deal that was cut in the debt ceiling deal. We should restrain that spending. We should fund at the levels, at pre-COVID levels, to get the bureaucracy back. We should start constraining that and set the stage for a president in 2025 to come in and start cleaning house and getting this country back by restoring the government to representing the people rather than the, you know, a special interest in Washington and, and frankly, the government itself. Well said. And Congressman Chip Roy, and you have endorsed uh, Governor DeSantis to be that president. And so uh, we'll have to have you back on to talk about that sometime soon. Um, Really appreciate that. And I think it's so well said that uh, why should Congress continue to fund the bureaucracy that Republicans campaign against. Uh, I think that's that's the perfect message. So thank you so much for joining me uh, this morning. And like I said, Congressman Bob Good will be on next week uh, to talk more about the RAINS Act and uh, give us a little bit more insight into all of that as well. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. It is so important to always read scripture for ourselves and to make sure that we have a knowledge of the Word of God and that we are growing in the grace and knowledge of the person of truth and we get to know our Lord and Savior better through reading the Bible. And the Bible League is a project that all of our uh, AFR listeners and our regulars will be familiar with. And Michael Woolworth, who is the Senior Director of Broadcast Media with the Bible League, uh, joins me now to talk about our final uh, push to get uh, the Word of God in Asia. And so, uh, Michael, how does the Bible League get Bibles into the hands 
uh, and hearts of believers in countries like China, India, and um, and in these countries that desperately need uh, to have the Bible for themselves. Well, Jenna, thanks for a few minutes this morning to uh, put this before your listeners. Yeah, let me answer that question, but let me also say that we're focused right now on the region of Asia. Why? Because this is where Christianity is growing fastest in the world. Listen, if you follow uh, organizations like Barna and Pew, they will tell us that church uh, growth here in America, it's somewhat stunted. It's on the decline, so that prompts you to wonder, where is it happening? Well, number three is Latin America, number two is the continent of Africa, and number one is the region of Asia. I'm thinking of countries like, again, China, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, a country I returned from just a few months ago. Um, but uh, the, the problem, uh, and, and, and this is remarkable, but this, that this is where growth is happening, uh, Jenna, because if you think about the last 100 years in that part of the world, um, Mao Zedong, the uh, Chinese Cultural Revolution. That meant that family turned on family. If you were Christian, your own family would turn you into authorities, right? Uh, in the walls of, Ch- of India right now, if you share your, your faith with others uh, and you say, hey, would you come into this kingdom life and let's follow Christ together, you could be thrown in jail for that. You know, the threat of Kim Jong-un, uh, the Khmer Rouge regime of Cambodia, you know, a lot of those cr- uh, people that, uh, that uh, he killed back in the late 70s, we're evangelical Christians, so you would say Christianity stands no chance right now in the region of Asia, but that is not true. There's a mighty move of God right now. Uh, this is where Christianity is growing fastest, about 4% per year. But at Bible League now, in our 85th year of ministry, we easily estimate that as many as 9 of 10 new believers are denied God's Word. There's a lot of reasons for that, Jenna. One of those, of course, is this phenomenal growth, and praise the Lord for that. But it's also corrupt governments and majority religions that do everything they can to stop the advance of the gospel. And so we're focused right now on that part of the world. You know, if you are persecuted, if you are... um, singled out, monitored, you're hated simply because you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, you need to be able to open your Bible on a daily basis, right? And be reminded God knows you intimately, He's with you, He's for you, and that there's others around you who are living out their faith in Jesus Christ. And So again, today's an opportunity for you and I just to kind of put this before your listeners um, and invite them to send Bibles to the region of Asia, the part of the world where Christianity is growing fastest. And this is such a wonderful project, and I'm so grateful for the Bible League ministry and your work there. And, you know, as you're talking, Michael, it strikes me how sad it is that in America— the reading of the Word of God and Christianity is on the decline when we can read this openly. We can go to literally any bookstore in America and get the Bible for ourselves in, you know, hundreds of different translations. And yet, where these Christians are being persecuted for their faith, they're being turned into a government that is tyrannical. They're the ones that are seeking so desperately to have the Word of God. And that should be a lesson to us that we need to open up our Bible daily because we still can and I think we take religious liberty and freedom for granted in this country in a mm-hmm. way that other Christians across the world would would just absolutely love to experience and so uh, how can AFR listeners get involved and uh, and collaborate with your ministry and help uh, reach these Christians with the Word of God well, let me tell you, places like Communist China, a man by the name of Katsu, uh, the man has been beaten in jail 25 times as a pastor just outside of Beijing. You know, the reason Christianity is growing there, Jenna, 
is because people are willing to suffer for the gospel. That was his story. He was beaten. He was burned. Um, they always let him go, told him to never speak of Jesus. A week later, the interrogator shows up at his doorstep. Hey, why were you at such peace when we were beating you? So this man lovingly opens his door, opens his, his Mandarin Bible, leads this man to Christ. Together, Jenna, they have witnessed thousands outside of Beijing coming to Christ. But those people are part of the house church movement. They have to be very careful about how they gather for worship, how they gather to study for the, the uh, to uh, study the Bible. But I can tell you, um, they would give anything for a Mandarin language Bible right now. And that's why we're doing this kingdom business. AFR listeners, you've been incredibly kind to Bible League over the many years that we have uh, worked together. And I will tell you right now, we're focused on putting the Bible into the hands and hearts of 16,000 Bibleist believers in the region of Asia, many of those countries we just mentioned. We're at 12,000. You've done that for 12,000 Bibleist believers, AFR listeners. We need to wrap up on June 25th, so another week or so to go. I know that's a big jump between where we're at today and where we need to be, but Jen, if there's a group that can get it done, it is the AFR listening family. Hey, all it takes is $5 a Bible, a $5 gift. We'll put a Bible into the hands of those Christians I just mentioned in China. So a $100 tax-deductible gift, that's Bibles for 20 Bibleist believers. Many of you have given five to $100. That's 100 Bibles, right? Two ways to get involved today. One is 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD. Or go to sendbiblesnow.org. That's sendbiblesnow.org. Again, we are about 60% of the way to our goal. We want to bless 16,000 Bibleist believers. AFR listeners, you've done that for 12,000 as of this morning, and we have until June 25th to uh, complete this very, very important goal. But, Jenna, thanks for a few moments this morning to put this before your listeners. And, again, AFR listeners, you've been incredibly kind to us. We're simply praying, will you do it again this time on behalf of Bibleist believers in Asia? Well, thank you so much, Michael Woolworth, for uh, your commitment to the Word of God and for spreading the truth of the gospel of Christ. So we're uh, grateful for you and for your ministry and thankful for your time today. So um, so AFR listeners, if you want to uh, join in uh, with that push, uh, please, please go ahead and, uh, and, and give. And uh, we just really commend your ministry. And you know, it is so important that we always are reading the Word of God for for ourselves, because here in America, we actually can, and uh, we need to be rightly dividing scripture and the truth of the word of God. And there is no greater example recently, and I'm talking about just literally yesterday, uh, of this and how we need to make sure that we are always relying on the inerrancy and sufficiency of the word of God uh, when we look to the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, my good friend Ryan Helfenbein, who is with Liberty University, uh, part of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, is going to join tomorrow to give us an update on this. But uh, we talked about this earlier uh, in the week with him about how uh, there is this controversy over what a woman is and what a what roles women can have in the church and in the ecclesia. And I am pleased to tell you that uh, the election results to sustain um, the action of disfellowshipping with Saddleback Church uh, was just resoundingly uh, confirmed with 88.6% of the vote saying yes, uh, because 
uh, Rick Warren and those associates were, were suggesting that the SBC fundamentally change their common confession to allow uh, women to take over the roles of pastor in the church and the member of the ecclesia. So in, in um, the last part of this segment, I want to play this about seven minute clip from the SBC. That's three minutes of Rick Warren, three minutes of Al Mohler that are debating this question. Listen to this. The chair recognizes Rick Warren for three minutes, and following his conclusion, the chair will recognize the executive committee and credentials committee for three minutes to respond. For 178 years, the SBC has been a blend of at least a dozen different tribes of Baptists. If you think every Baptist thinks like you, you're mistaken. What we share in common is a mutual commitment to the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's Word and to the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. No one is asking any Southern Baptist to change their theology. I'm not asking you to agree with my church. I am asking you to act like a Southern Baptist who have historically agreed to disagree on dozens of doctrines in order to share a common mission. Since Southern Baptists have always allowed disagreement on doctrines, of, including the essential doctrines of salvation, why should this one issue cancel our fellowship? In 2013, when the Calvinists were under fire, Baptists agreed to disagree and the split was averted. Now, 10 years later, will we treat egalitarian Baptists with the same grace we showed the Calvinists? We should remove churches for all kinds of sexual sin, racial sin, financial sin, leadership sin, sins that harm the testimony of our convention. But the 1,928 churches with women on pastoral staff have not sinned. If doctrinal disagreements between Baptists are considered sin, we all get kicked out. You'll never get 100% of Baptists to agree 100% on 100% of doctrine. That's why our Constitution says that churches must closely identify, not completely identify, with our confession. Now, the Baptist faith and message is 4,032 words. Saddleback disagrees with one word. That's 99.9999999999 in agreement. Isn't that close enough? Al Mohler, who for some reason gets to speak twice and do the rebuttals, claims the phrase, the office of the pastor is limited to men, that that also includes every staff position too, and somehow it also prevents any woman from teaching. But I was able to contact about half over half of the original drafting committee of the Baptist Faith Message 2000, and seven of them told me Al was wrong. In fact, before the vote on the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, even Al in his hometown newspaper said it didn't limit women from being assistant pastors. Go read it in the Courier Journal. If this precedent is set, Southern Seminary will have to change the name of the Billy Graham School since Billy Graham trained women pastors at our global training events and he endorsed the preaching ministry of his daughter saying Anne is the best preacher in, in the Graham family. Vote no. If this precedent is set, we'll have to rename our two... I'm very sorry, but the time has expired. 
Chair now recognizes the Executive Committee, Credentials Committee, for a response. Thank you, Mr. President. As the Chairman of the Executive Committee, I would like to again recognize Dr. Albert Moeller as the representative of the Executive Committee to respond to the appeal. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I just want to say that my position was there misrepresented, but nonetheless, it is important to state for the record that Albert Moeller does not say what the Baptist faith and message means. The Southern Baptist Convention says what the Baptist faith and message means and is quite competent to accomplish that task. In the year 2000, the words, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture was inserted because 30 years ago, this issue threatened to tear this denomination apart. The definition of friendly cooperation came down to the fact that that was an issue that would endanger the cooperative cohesion and faithfulness of the church, of the Southern Baptist Convention. And in particular, we look to this issue because Southern Baptists decided this is not just a matter of church polity. It is not just a matter of hermeneutics. It's a matter of biblical commitment, a commitment to the scripture that unequivocally, we believe, limits the office of pastor to men. It is an issue of biblical authority. It is one that has actually led to the unity of the Southern Baptist Convention as Southern Baptists have gone forward with an issue of clarity here, which has greatly made our doctrine and order a matter of unity and harmony. It is the unity and harmony of the Southern Baptist Convention that is now at stake. And we're in an unusual situation. Once again, this is not a convention responsibility to offer a comprehensive verdict on the ministry of Rick Warren or Saddleback Community Church. We can thank God for every good gospel thing that is represented by that church and its ministry. It is a question about the Southern Baptist Convention and what it means for a church to be in friendly cooperation in doctrine and in order with this convention. And here we face the unusual situation in which Dr. Warren himself has made repeated statements and the church has taken repeated actions that make very clear that it rejects the confessional understanding of the Southern Baptist Convention on this issue. This isn't a question of misunderstanding. The Credentials Committee and the Executive Committee took action based upon the actions of Saddleback Community Church in establishing a woman as a campus pastor and having women with the title of pastor to teach in the teaching role on Sunday morning and then Pastor Warren going on to say more expansively that the church basically and he endorses and calls for a more comprehensive egalitarianism. I'm confident that's not where the Southern Baptist Convention is going to go. I believe that it is a statement without rancor and without personal attack, without making a comprehensive verdict on a congregation that is no longer among us, we simply say that our credentials committee and executive committee have done the right thing. We need to do that. Fire win from Al Mohler, and we have to stand firm on doctrinal sufficiency. And if every Christian uh, were just fulfilling the Great Commission and that's what it means to be a pastor, then literally every Christian would be a pastor. There are clearly defined roles. I'm grateful to the Southern Baptist Convention. We're going to have more on that tomorrow morning with our good friend Ryan Helfenbein, and we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, the 2024 primary is heating up, and there are now some very distinct policy differences in the top two contenders, of course, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And uh, Governor DeSantis said uh, last week in an interview with Ben Shapiro and The Daily Wire that if elected president, he would work with Congress to repeal the First Step Act, which was a signature law signed by former President Donald Trump that was aimed at reducing recidivism and releasing some nonviolent offenders from federal prison. DeSantis uh, said in that interview, under the Trump administration, he enacted a bill, basically a jailbreak bill called the First Step Act. It has allowed dangerous people out of prison who have now reoffended and really, really hurt a number of people. Uh, Governor DeSantis said, if you were in jail, you should serve your time. So to discuss more, I am pleased to welcome back uh, my good friend Ken Cuccinelli, who is the founder of the Never back down pack, uh, which has encouraged Governor DeSantis to run for president, which he now is. So, uh, Ken, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Good morning, Jenna. Yeah, so uh, so this this policy issue and this distinction, um, I think, is really important for people to understand because it really does seem like uh, Donald Trump is now running a lot to the left of Governor DeSantis, and I think it's important for people to understand some of these policy differences. So um, so let's start with the First Step Act. Um, what is your view on, uh, because you worked for the Trump administration, um, you know, obviously not in, in this specific area, but um, but with, you know, a lot of this of similar issues. So how is this um, a policy that, that Ron DeSantis uh, wants to say that he wants to to repeal and and ultimately I, I think have uh, a better view of criminal justice reform. Well, and of course his track record on criminal justice in Florida is spectacular. He has brought he has led Florida to its lowest crime level in over fifty years. So um, this isn't claims without credibility. He has a track record. He's been both a civilian and a military prosecutor. Heck, he's even been on prosecution teams for terrorists at Guantanamo Bay. So uh, he brings an awful lot of credibility to this issue. And the focus of his complaints is the reduction of sentences for people who then go out and commit other crimes, uh, victimize other people. And, um, you know, that is the the, the discussion on First Step Act was nonviolent offenders, but well, the crimes we're seeing reported are not nonviolent offenses. And um, so this is a major, as you point out, a major policy difference between the two candidates for the Republican nomination, the two, I'll say, legitimate candidates. I, I think I'm not sure why everybody else is in, but but these two differ substantially on this. And the governor is frankly, just continuing as he has for 10 years. He's very consistent on these issues. Um, he was certainly supportive of prison reform, but not sentence reduction. And that's where the First Step Act went. And that's a great explanation, uh, Ken Cuccinelli. And I think it is very important for uh, people to understand in determining how they will exercise uh, their vote in the primary, if in fact they are uh, going to cast that vote in the Republican primary, and I anticipate that most of our listeners here will, uh, to, to understand more than just kind of the, the top level uh, 
personality differences, which is what a lot of the mainstream media seems to be focused on. And certainly um, the Trump campaign seems to be focused on, you know, kind of painting Ron DeSantis in a certain way. And then, uh, you know, of course, the the uh, campaigns otherwise are trying to paint uh, President Trump in a certain way. And so really, though, when we are electing a a chief magistrate we should be concerned about the policy and what they actually stand for. So where are some other distinctions that you see um, in terms of your advocacy for Governor DeSantis over President Trump? Well, you said it, Jenna, on your way in. You noted that Governor DeSantis has pointed out that Trump is attacking DeSantis and has been, by the way, attacking him for seven months, pretty much straight, not much in the way of anybody else. Um, on the Republican side from the left. Which is interesting. (laughs) Yes. It is interesting. Um, You know, whether it's a budget restraint, attacks him from the left. Um, The culture war, he took Disney's side, took Bud Light's side. Um, And and he's not alone in that. Governor DeSantis is much more alone among Republican leadership in not backing down that's the name of our super PAC, never back down um, on never backing down on these culture battles. And people, people who view America, not just in economic terms, but in spiritual terms. And it, it's hard not to look back at the founding and appreciate the founders own view that the hand of God was at play here, that he favored us and um, that it, probably (laughs) would have been awfully hard to beat the greatest power in the world without that. And, um, and so there's the the spiritual battle, the cultural battle matters, not just today to protect our children and nobody's working harder to protect children than the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, but, um, but for all of America and he can help do that across America, even if you live in California and New York and, and, and these incredibly blue states where they seem to just think through left-wing virtue signaling as their basis for legislating. Um, there are things at the federal level that can be done to protect children and to empower parents. It isn't the government protecting children. It's giving parents the power to protect and control their own children's lives. And he's mm-hmm. done Which that, again, so just like criminal justice. He's got an incredible track record, an unmatched track record in Florida, does Governor DeSantis on that front. This isn't just talk. He's the only one with that kind of record running for president on either side of the aisle. And Ken Cuccinelli, I think this is such a, a an important point as well, is that uh, both of these top candidates, uh, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, both do have a record in the executive branch. And a lot of the uh, the rhetoric is that, well, you know, Trump's been there, done that, and uh, Governor DeSantis isn't yet prepared. We hear all of this, you know, he's not ready. Um, but but I think that people looking at his record in the state of Florida uh, can see how the, it's it's obvious why governor is typically a platform to then go on and become president. And so contrasting the two records, and you were part of the Trump administration, um, and, and now you're supporting Governor DeSantis, contrast the to records, if you would, in terms of fitness and sufficiency to actually carry out what I think, you know, everyone who's listening to this program actually wants, whether it's, you know, Trump or DeSantis, we want solutions and and we want to see America 
come back to the the glory of the founding vision that we all want to see. Yeah, if you know, if you want a showman, no one will touch Donald Trump for your presidential showman. If you want a guy to see hard policy all the way through to implementation, Ron DeSantis is untouchable um, in that effort. And I was, as you noted, inside the Trump administration. I was the deputy secretary in the Department of Homeland Security. I was proud of the work we were doing there. I was working hard to implement the president's agenda. But I can't tell you how many people that the president and his own team hired who were against the president's own agenda, and yet they didn't fire them. It was astonishing, and it was sloppy, and it was random. And so the result was, even when you got good decisions from the president, he didn't come to the table nearly as prepared as what you see in Florida in the governor uh, of Florida in Ron DeSantis. And he didn't follow through. I'll give you an example. Um, H-1B visas are these high-tech visas that displace middle-class workers, middle-class Americans for tech companies. And because they're supposedly transient, even though all of these people try to stay here permanently, they don't charge them Social Security or Medicare taxes. And setting aside how silly that is, that means that hiring a tech worker uh, from another country and firing the American in that job saves a company 15% roughly. It costs them 15% less. And after a, a series of discussions, President Trump finally agreed with me on that. But that's not a DHS step to take. The Department of the Treasury has to regulate in that area and equate the taxes. So the president's suggestion for me, to, well, order to me, after he decided that, this is how he implemented it. Can you call Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, whom we ineffectionately called President Mnuchin, um, and tell him to do it? Well, I couldn't even get the Secretary of Treasury on the phone. Couldn't even get him on the phone. He wouldn't even return my calls. It was hard enough to get the Deputy Secretary to return my calls. They never lifted a finger. And when I reported that back to the president, he did nothing about it. You contrast that with Governor DeSantis, who didn't just work to protect children K through three. He then expanded that uh, all the way through elementary school. He's going through the books, the so-called book banning, where the media, when he did a press conference on the books they were banning, he held them up. And they were cutting their video feeds because they were inappropriate to show on their media channels. But somehow the same media was criticizing Governor DeSantis <laughs> for moving them out of school libraries. Um, and, uh, and then he went forward into school board races. He helped 34 candidates running for school board around Florida. 29 of them won. They took over a majority of the Miami-Dade school board. While he won that county, that very difficult county, um, by double digits. If I remember correctly, Hillary won that county by 30 points or something unbelievable. Well, he won it by over 10 and um, and brought school board people with him. So he didn't just say, hey, look, I got this neat law. Now, hopefully it'll get implemented. He went out and got people onto the boards that control education county by county in Florida, and he, he helped them win. 
with his coattails. Um, that's his kind of follow through all the way through and then fires people who don't obey those laws. He's the only person in America to fire a Soros prosecutor, the only one anywhere in America. So for all the whining that we hear and complaining on our own side, myself included, about um, the double standard of justice, he's the only one doing something about it that's significant. And, you know, for President Trump to say, oh, I'm going to clean this up in six months. I was there for part of those four years. He wasn't really trying on that front. It was all just bluster. And I've had it with bluster. America needs more than bluster and showmanship. It needs follow through and principle. And Ron DeSantis has been a principled, consistent conservative for 10 years. Look back at what his time in Congress. You'll see nothing inconsistent with what he did as governor. That alone is rare in Washington. He is one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus, um, one of nine uh, founders of the Freedom Caucus. Um, and he has brought that same attitude to the governorship. And as you point out, Jenna, it's these, it's these executives who really are best prepared to be president, um, like a governor. No one, no chief executive, president or governor has performed as well across so many issues so deeply as Ron DeSantis in our lifetimes. And we need that in America for president. This isn't about Ron DeSantis. It's about accomplishment for America. And I'm speaking with King Cuccinelli, who's the founder of the Never Back Down Pack and former uh, Trump administration official. And uh, I think that we can all agree, Ken, that we need solutions, we need strategy, and we need wins. Uh, we have seen that really the conservative right uh, has not won on a national level in quite a while. And I think that, as you say, uh, people are tired of bluster and of talk from, you know, Congress all the way through uh, some of these candidates yeah. in the executive. Yeah. And and I see um, Governor DeSantis having a real strategy that he's shown that he has implemented. And that, I think, is really important. Um, but in just the last few minutes that we have here today, what would you say to the people who are saying, you know, I get all that and that's fine and, you know, but 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 Ron can wait his turn. We need to um, vote for President Trump to get back in because of the weaponization of government against him. You know, he deserves his second four years. Um, this should not be about the man. It isn't about Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump. For me, I'm not anti-Trump. I, I love Donald Trump. I was proud to work for him. But I learned an awful lot about how effective he can and can't be. Ron, if you want all of the achievements you described, Jenna, Ron DeSantis will achieve them. And Donald Trump has proven that he will not. And that's a, that's rough to face up to, but it's real. It is real. And um, I, I am tired of both losing and then it not mattering as much as it could. And by the way, to Ron DeSantis will have eight years, not just four. And when you talk about winning, you know, we were all looking for a red wave in 2022. There was only one place in America there was a red wave, and it was Florida. And it was because of one man, Ron DeSantis, who led the way. And he led the whole team. He, he brought school board members. He expanded majorities in his House and Senate. He paid attention to making his coattails matter for the whole team. 
because his point wasn't just to be governor, it was to accomplish things to protect children and to and to expand opportunity in Florida. Really we well said, Ken, and we got it we gotta leave it there, but I so appreciate it. We've got to continue to look at the policies and exercise our vote in the best way that we can as Americans under God. I'll see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.